Well, I enjoyed that. I hope you did too. I think I enjoyed uh, not only hearing the children saying their verses, but I enjoyed spe- uh, specifically looking at the parents of those children as they were saying the verses. And they were looking like you know, deers caught in a headlight, and they were mouthing the words as the children were speaking. <laughs> and then we got to the Robertsons when Christine started speaking in Chinese, and we just all went... <laughs> No idea what she's saying. So, praise the Lord. Well, you, ha- you heard this morning the, the bad news and you heard the good news. And really, that is the best news. Uh, that um, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you believe that this morning. You're saved. You know the Lord. So, we'll talk a little bit about that as we go through the message this morning as well. But uh, our message this morning, we're going to continue on in our study of the uh, characters. We're still in the New Testament, or finishing up the New Testament. And uh, my question this morning for you is, who is Zutzagos? Have you heard of that character? So I'll let you ponder that for a little while here, and uh, we'll talk about him in, in a few minutes most of you remember September 11th, 2001. It's one of those days in history that you remember exactly where you were when you heard the news that the U.S. suffered a terrorist attack in New York. And um, you remember the details of it, 8.46 a.m., uh, New York time, American Airlines Flight 11 slammed into uh, the, it was commandeered really as a weapon, and it slammed into uh, one of the Twin Towers. It was a Boeing 767, and it hit the tower uh, between the 93rd and the 99th floors of that tower. And really, it effectively cut off all means of escape above the 99th floor. Anybody who was there could not escape. Seventeen minutes later, United Airlines flight number 175, another hijacked Boeing 767, hit the second tower. And it hit between the 77th and the 85th floors of that building. They estimate that probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,000 people were trapped above those points in the building and could not escape. No possible way. Early in the day, as the broadcaster sent their film crews to the, to the site, they began to film. And the pictures, I, I still remember the pictures were just gut-wrenching. As I watched, and I'm sure as you watched as well, and you, you knew that there were people trapped in those buildings. And you knew those people would not escape that day, that they were going to meet God that day. Some of the original footage showed despair on the faces of the people who were trapped. And they, you could just see on their faces the horror of knowing that they were facing death. Some of the uh, footage, uh, you know, you can just imagine uh, the, the people as they were weighing their options. Do I stay in a burning building and be consumed by the flames or do I jump? And you think of how high that is. It's a thousand feet in the air or more. A certain death. And I watched helplessly, as many of you did as well, knowing uh, that, or, or in fact, they even showed some people taking that plunge to their death. They, they eventually stopped showing that on, uh, on the television. But early on, those, those scenes were being portrayed. You know, all hope of rescue was gone. And all their future plans ended at a moment in time. They had no say in the matter. They had no way of controlling the issue. And they were facing certain death. It's certainly not the way they began their day, was it? And it's certainly not the way you began your day this morning. But none of us knows what a day will bring forth. And the question today for you is, are you ready to meet God? Are you ready to meet Him? If you were to die today, are you ready for eternity? Our character study this morning is about a man who 
like the people in the Twin Towers, was at his job. It was just a day like any other day. And um, life's circumstances changed so radically that he would be faced ultimately with suicidal thoughts at the end of his workday because of the hopelessness, the utter hopelessness of his circumstances. Now, I don't know what troubles you face this morning. I don't know what's going on necessarily in your life and the issues that you're addressing. You may be facing some of the darkest days of your life. It seems perhaps that life is out of control. But there is a God in heaven who knows all about it. He knows everything there is to know, and nothing has taken him by surprise. And this is what he says. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. God has a plan for you. That I'm assured of in the Scripture. And it is not the devastating uh, situation that we see here. God is at work behind the scenes in an unseen way. Sometimes we get glimpses of what He's doing, but He is at work in all of our lives, and He has everything under control. Now, before we get to the uh, character this morning, I want to set the stage for you. The Apostle Paul was traveling on what we now call his second missionary journey, and uh, he left from the town of Antioch, and he traveled through... Uh, um, Asia Minor really is what it is, and uh, he got to a, the town of Troas. If you have a map at the back of your Bible, uh, one map probably says something like um, Paul's missionary journeys or something along those lines. And if they're color-coded, look for the one that says second or the second missionary journey or something like that. And just to give you kind of an idea of, of what, where we're talking uh, about. Mm-hmm. So if you see someone, that, one that says second, mine happens to be purple. And on the map that I have here, I'm sure you need glasses to see this. But basically Antioch is up here in this corner. That's where the church was that sent them. And they went over to this side here, to the to, right near that body of water, um, And there's a little town called Troas. It's right on the coast. And he was there, and he began to think in terms of kind of shifting his focus and going into Asia. That's where he wanted to go. And uh, the Lord gave him a vision that night. The, The Holy Spirit of God overruled his thoughts and changed his plans that that night and changed world history forever in that one moment. In uh, Acts chapter 16, let's take a look there, and we'll begin reading the passage. Acts chapter 16, and verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So just to, again, so you can see what we're talking about, if you go back to that map for a second, hold your finger in the Bible passage. Macedonia is over on this side over here. Really, it's, it's modern-day Greece is what it is, but it's Macedonia. Um, they'd have to basically cross by water or go up and over by land. But uh, God, he saw in this vision a man from Macedonia calling to him. And saying, come over here and help us. Verse 10. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now we often refer to this vision as the Macedonian call. And as we will see, it results in the gospel going out to Europe for the first time. And as a result of the gospel going out to Europe around 49 or 50 A.D., we have the gospel preached to us here in America in 2011. So here this morning, we are here really ultimately because the gospel went to Europe back here in 49 A.D. So let's see what happens next. Paul was traveling with a man named Silas, and he is joined here by um, Luke. 
Luke is the man God used to write the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts that we're referring to here. So Acts chapter 16, verse 11. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. When it says a colony here, it means a Roman colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made, And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. The girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of, he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, this is the beginning of the gospel going out into Europe. And ultimately, as we said centuries later, coming to America and to you this morning. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is really the good news that you heard today. First, you heard the bad news, which is you're all a bunch of sinners. <laughs> I am too. Okay? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay? The wages of sin is death. That's not good news. Okay? Knowing that we are sinners, we are helpless before God, we cannot... Uh, uh, we cannot do anything to, for our sins to be forgiven. We can't do any good works to please God and make Him accept us. That's really bad news. But God has done the work necessary for us. And that is, He sent His Son to the cross to die in our place and pay the punishment for our sins on the cross. That's very good news. And that good news is the news that we believe that saves us. And so Paul went to uh, Troas, and his, uh, I mean, to uh, Philippi, And his desire was to tell people this news. That look, God wants to save you. You're a sinner on your way to hell and God wants to save you. He wants you to have a relationship with Him. He wants to take you to heaven ultimately and to be with Him for all eternity. That's good news, wouldn't you say? And so that's what he wanted to tell them. And uh, so he shared the good news. He, he uh, went down on a Sabbath day. That was a Saturday. And as their custom was, there were people that were meeting together and they were praying. And there was a lady there named Lydia. And it says that she worshiped God. Now, she was not a believer. She was not a Christian. But she was um, probably a convert to Judaism who at least acknowledged that there is God. She at least acknowledged that God existed and that God is the creator and the sustainer of life and all of these sorts of things. And she worshipped him as she understood. And there are many people like Lydia today. They know a little bit about God. They may have had a religious upbringing. They may have gone to church or to Sunday school. And they know something about God, but they've never personally come to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior, their Lord and Savior. And so if you're in that position this morning, you say, well, you know what? I've heard about God all my life. I know about God, but there's more. God wants you to know Him in a personal way and for you to have Him as as your Savior. So Paul began to tell her the good news. And she believed. 
She says, that's it. I believe Jesus Christ is God. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. <laughs> what must I do to be saved? And Paul led her and her family uh, to the Lord. Now, Lydia was an interesting person. She was originally from um, Thyatira. So if you go back to that earlier map we were looking at, and you look at a pla- place in an area, um, it's east of um, Troas, and it's uh, modern-day Turkey today. And so she came from the city of Thyatira. And she was a seller of purple. See, these would be garments that were dyed purple. And she would take them to Philippi, and there she would sell her goods. But she was successful enough that it seems she had a home in Thyatira, and she had a home in um, Philippi. And that's where she did her trade. So she would go back and forth, it seems, uh, seems like. So she had this home in um, Philippi. And so she said to uh, Paul and Silas and Luke, look, why don't you come and stay with me at my house? You guys are out living in tents, probably. Come on, stay here while you're in town and, and stay at my place. And they did. So the next day and for several days after that, Paul and Silas and Luke would go out into the city of uh, Philippi and they would try to share the good news with other people and tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ and how they can have a relationship with him. And uh, there was a girl from town, and she was a uh, fortune teller. She was actually possessed by a demon. And so people would pay her, and she would tell them their fortunes. And uh, there were people who actually owned this girl as a slave. They were, uh, she belonged to them. And so whatever money she got from uh, telling people lies, essentially, uh, they pocketed the money, and they made quite a uh, you know, healthy business out of it. And so this girl, who was well-known in the town, was following behind Paul and Silas as they were saying, listen, we want to tell you the truth about God. And she would come behind them and say, hey, people, you need to listen to these people. They're telling you the truth about God. Okay. Now, I don't know about you, if you've ever thought or, or looked into what it takes to advertise something, but this is not a good advertisement. Okay. Um, if you, if you have a person who is known to be a liar, is known to be demon-possessed, do you really want them saying, hey, listen, these guys are telling you the truth, okay? There's an old uh, riddle. I, I don't know if you know it. I, I can't remember it just off the top of my head, but the idea is talking about, you know, which is a lie. And, and in this case, how can you believe someone who is constantly telling lies? It's not good advertisement. It's kind of like, let's put it in a different perspective. Some of you have gone out to the farmer's market. And your sole purpose in going to the farmer's market is not to buy, buy vegetables, although you might do it while you're there. But you've set up a book table and you're preaching the gospel to people who come to the book table. Now, suppose there was a clown who also was out there at the farmer's market and he was doing balloon tricks or whatever he was. And he was, and you were at the table and you're saying to people who are coming to you, listen, I want to tell you the truth about Jesus Christ, who he is, and how you can have a personal relationship with him. And the clown comes up alongside of you, puts his arm around you, and says, you gotta believe this guy. You really gotta believe this guy. Now, do you really want that? I wouldn't. And that's kind of like this, only it's worse because she's demon possessed. And she was saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. And Paul just couldn't take any more of it. He'd had enough. And he turned around and he rebuked the spirit who was in this woman and cast the spirit out of the woman. And she was delivered. And she was wonderfully saved. It's a marvelous uh, uh, transformation in this woman. Now, all of a sudden, she can't lie. (laughs) She can't tell uh, fortunes anymore. And the guys who own her are going, whoa, there's our profit. There's our money. That's our source of income. And it's just gone. They're not rejoicing and saying, wow, what a wonderful transformation has taken place in this woman. They're saying, hey, our money is gone. And somebody's got to pay for this. And it's that guy right there who cast the demon out. And so he, they haul him into court, uh, Paul and Silas. And uh, they must have had some influence on the court system and had him stripped down beaten and thrown into prison. 
the way the passage is worded, you'd have to follow the personal pronouns here, but you'll see that the personal pronoun we, 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 we is there for quite a bit of the, the passage. And then all of a sudden when it comes to the beating part and the casting into prison part, it's they. And it's interesting because Luke is there with them and when he's out there with them, he's saying we, but he wasn't one who was beaten. He wasn't one who was cast into prison. And we don't know why, but he then says they. And he's talking about Paul and Silas who were uh, punished uh, for this. So they're in prison. Paul and Silas are handed over to the jailer. And so our um, jailer is, is our character study this morning. And he was charged to put them in high security in the inner prison and fasten their feet in stocks. This is a terrible injustice. These guys hadn't done anything wrong. In fact, all they had done was they had helped this poor woman out, delivered her from the oppression and the possession uh, of this uh, demon. A terrible injustice. And it was highly illegal what they had done. Okay, Paul, it's interesting. Remember I pointed out to you that it says of Philippi that it's a colony? Okay, so what it means is this. It's like little Rome in the midst of Greece. And it has all the laws, all the rules, all the justice system and everything else of Rome. And Paul is a Roman citizen by birth. He didn't buy his Roman citizenship. He was a Roman. He's in the protection of the Roman um, system, legal system, and it is illegal to beat and to jail, well, to arrest and to beat and to jail someone who is a Roman without a fair trial. And he did not have a fair trial. This is totally illegal what happened here. And Paul knows it. And so he stands up for his rights. No, he doesn't. He accepts this as the hand of God. It's amazing. I'm not sure whether I would have had the same uh, attitude that Paul had. But he does. Paul and Silas um, knew that God was in control. You know, it, it is important for us to realize this. It really is. Life is not fair. <laughs> if you thought it was, you're dreaming. Life is not fair. People do illegal things. You may suffer injustices. It's not always fair. But instead of grumbling and complaining and becoming bitter and angry and resentful, they praised God. And at midnight, as they were praying, their hearts were overflowing with praise to God in the midst of this injustice. And they're worshiping God so loud that the other prisoners can't sleep. The only guy sleeping here is the jailer. And he's probably off in some other room because he can't, he's, he's sound asleep. But the others are listening. And it says in verse 25, But at midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Brothers and sisters, you may be going through a very hard uh, and serious trouble, hardship, and sometimes you wonder when it will ever end. Someone said, I read something uh, over the weekend, he said, so the next time you're feeling all alone, and deep down inside you hear the rumblings of that old song, oh, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Stop right there. Everybody knows the trouble you've seen. We're all going through it together. And instead of moaning about your troubles, start singing praise to God. Why, you never know. You might just be the one who causes a prison break for the rest of us. And in the midst of their singing and praising God, God moved in a marvelous way. In verse 26, suddenly there was an earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. Now we meet the man in trouble. He went to work that morning. It was just going to be another day in the prison. He was probably a tough character because he had to deal with 
kind of a rough crowd. I mean, you can't be a prison guard and not deal with rough characters. And when you deal with rough characters, sometimes it rubs off on you, and you become a little jaded yourself. And I think probably that was true of him. It's tough to work in that kind of environment and not let it or not have it affect you. And it did, I'm sure. So we often become hardened by surrounding ourselves with people who are hardened. Roman soldiers were known to be tough, and I'm sure he was just as tough, and he was a rugged man. Now, although he was a man of authority, he was also a man under authority, and he knew it. You see, he had been given a charge to secure the prisoners, and it was a very clear command, and he was responsible for the prisoners. And so he took his duty, he took his job seriously, and when he was told this, he said, well, the best place for them then is in the inner prison. And the best place in the inner prison is with their feet in stocks. And I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of a person with their feet in stocks, but it's a very uncomfortable position to be in. You're sitting on a hard floor, probably just damp uh, dirt, hard damp dirt, with your feet straight into stocks, and you're just sitting there. And that's where they were secured. That was their way of, of chaining them down. And they were in chains as well, of course. So he uh, secured them well. You know, on September 11th, it was a rude awakening for those people when they finally realized that there was no escape. Absolutely no escape. This jailer was rudely awakened by this earthquake. And he realized that his, his jig was up. He was responsible for the loss of all of these prisoners. Verse 27, And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Imagine the feelings of devastation. And, and that he must have uh, endured. In a split second of time, his entire life crumbled. Everything. It just totally uh, changed. How many people have gone through this kind of a life-altering event? Now, I know some of you have. Uh, Rick has often talked about the accident he had with the, uh, the Mack truck or whatever kind of truck it was. You know, being run over by a semi. It changes your outlook on life. <laughs> you know? And many of us, the Lord, in His grace, brought us to the end of ourself in our life. Sometimes He had to speak with a very loud voice. And sometimes He speaks with a very gentle voice. But the voice is still the same. And that is to believe on Him. What kind of life-altering events? A man comes home and his wife tells him, You know, honey, I'm through. It's, I've had enough. I'm done. I want a divorce after 25 years of marriage. It's life-altering, shocking. You show up one work one day at work, and your boss says to you, clean out your desk. We don't need your services anymore. Worked there for 20 years or longer. I remember, I don't know if you remember the story that Howard told years ago um, about uh, Safeway, and Safeway was under the threat of uh, a hostile takeover. And so they were looking at um, reducing their expenses. And one of the ways of doing that, of course, is getting rid of employees. And Safeway at that time had just put into place a new slogan. And they had had all of their checks printed up with this new slogan. And the people who were getting their severance pay or their final paycheck were paid, apparently, with these checks. It had S-O-S on it. That's, that's bad enough. But the SOS stood for this. Safeway offers security. Final paycheck. (laughs) Not much security. It's a devastating effect in a person's life to lose their job after so long. You have your annual checkup. The doctor tells you, I'm sorry, but you've only got three weeks to live. In fact, I just read a story about this I forget who it was now, a friend of the family, I believe it was, and they said that so they went in for a checkup and the doctor said, you probably only have about two weeks to live. And they went home and within 24 hours they had passed away. You get a call from the local police department 
And the person on the other end says, I'm sorry to inform you that your son or your daughter was just killed in a tragic uh, auto accident. It doesn't just change your day. It changes your life. It, it's stunning, uh, these sorts of things that happen. And I can only imagine how weak or how devastated the people in the Twin Towers felt that day as they debated whether to stay and be consumed in the flames or to jump to a certain death. What kind of a choice is that? Life is over. And I can only imagine the feeling of the Philippian jailer who was in the same circumstances as far as he was concerned. It's it. I'm done. It's over. How am I going to face my wife? How am I going to face my family? How am I going to face the scrutiny of my superiors who are going to hold me responsible and accountable for the loss of the prisoners that I was set in charge to secure? It's over. It's hopeless. I don't have a job. I can't support my family more. It's not worth living. I'm just going to take a sword and kill myself. It's over. Prisoners had escaped. At least that's what he thought. And all of this happened not by chance, but God was trying to get the attention of this one man. Now, God was at work in other things too. He's causing all things to work together for good for Paul and Silas, obviously to release them from prison and get them back out preaching the gospel. But God was interested in this one man here in this jail, the jailer. He wanted to save his soul. This man who had reached the end of his rope, Paul cried out to him and said, Do not harm yourself. We're here. Verse 28. Paul called out with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. You didn't come here by chance this morning. You're here because God wants you here. He wants you to hear the gospel, the good news of salvation. Thankfully, you have not been traumatized this morning by such serious events. But God is calling out to you in your own circumstances right now, whatever those circumstances are, and He wants to save your soul. And as I said, sometimes God speaks in a very loud voice. And maybe the Lord is just speaking to you this morning in a very still voice, very quiet, and saying, I want you to believe in my Son. The jailer asked a question that you should be asking this morning. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is so simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Saved? Saved from what? Saved from the penalty of your sin. Saved from death. Saved from eternal separation from God. Saved from eternity in hell. Saved. God wants to save you. And you'll be saved from uh, separation from God. You see, God wants to forgive your sins. That's what business God is in. He is in the business of forgiving sins. And He wants to forgive yours. He wants to cleanse you. He wants you to have a right relationship with Him so that you might be with Him for all eternity. Believe what? Believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day for you. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And if you believe that, you are saved. When a person believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, he becomes a child of God. He joins the family of God. And one of the indicators of true salvation is how we respond to others who have also believed. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, it says this, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brothers also. So what happens is this. Here is a man who is a, a jailer. And he, like I said, he's a rough and tough kind of a guy. 
And he is in the business of making lives miserable. I mean, that's really what he did. And he would chain them and put them in prison and keep them there in this prison. But now he has believed on the the Lord. And his whole outlook in life has changed instantly. And instead of being one to beat them and to, to chain them and to keep them in prison, he invites them into his home. And he takes care of their wounds. And he feeds them. And he gives them something to eat and something to drink and clothes them. Total transformation. Total transformation. And he took them, verse 33, that same hour of the night, and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God, with all his household. Wow, what a transformation. That is true salvation. When a man has such a a radical transformation in his life that what he used to be, he is no longer. What he used to be is dead and he's alive in Christ. Paul only stayed a few more days in Philippi because he wanted to preach the gospel to other towns, to tell others about the Lord. And... uh, Once again, we get back to that personal pronoun thing. We no longer see in the writing in Acts at this point the we, we, we. And so we have to assume that Luke stayed behind and helped in the the new assembly that had sprung up in Philippi. So who was there in the assembly? Well, there was Lydia and her family, and there was the jailer and his family. Two families came together. And uh, did they meet at Lydia's house or did they meet at the jailer's house? I have no idea. And uh, it could have been at Lydia's, and they, it might have been like the early church at Calvary, where sometimes we met at Howard's house, sometimes we met at Scott's house, sometimes we met at Rick's house. It didn't matter. All the houses were open, and we began to meet together. So we know this, <clears throat> that the church grew. And eventually, uh, it grew large enough that there were elders and deacons and saints. And there was always a great affection that they had towards Paul, And they helped Paul financially uh, in in the work that God gave him to do. You see, the Philippians were, uh, were great in this respect. They saw that what Paul was doing, that if they could help Paul financially in what he was doing, that it would be a tremendous investment in the work of God. Now, that investment, some of us think of investments, and today there aren't very many good investments. Really, there aren't. You know, what's the bank offering? 0.0001% if you keep it there for five years in a CD lockdown. Minimum deposit, $100 or whatever. You know, I mean, there's nothing. Terrible, terrible uh, opportunities to make good dividends today from, from investments. But I'll tell you one investment you can make that will pay dividends for eternity, okay? And we're talking not about 0.001%. Jesus says that these investments are worth sometimes up to uh, a, a hundredfold. That's 10,000%. Think of any bank offering you that kind of... I mean, people would be lined up putting their money in there. Put a dollar in, you know, that's a good investment for that kind of uh, return. But here, they looked at the gospel and what Paul was doing as, as a way of investing in eternity. And so they gave to Paul and they uh, provided financially for him. And I'll, I'll tell you something, their dividends are paying off even today. Okay, We are part of that. The fact that the gospel went to Europe, the fact that the gospel came to America, the fact that you believed is really in part uh, um, attributable to what investment they made in Paul's ministry. It's tremendous. So if you want a place to invest, it's in the gospel. Okay, I'd recommend it highly. Excellent place. We believe that Paul visited them a couple of times, but particularly um, he wrote a letter. It's the, the epistle of the uh, Philippians about 10 years later. And uh, they had sent yet another generous gift to Paul, and he was thanking them for it. Now, we know that the Scripture says this. When it comes to the books that are included in the Word of God, it says this, We know that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So it was really God 
moving Paul to write the letter to the Philippians. And it's really interesting to me to think about it that way because it's a thank you letter. If God is prompting Paul to write a thank you letter, it's really a thank you letter from God. God is saying, listen, Philippians, I, um, the Lord Jesus Christ said before he left, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's the last command. It's, it's the, great, the great commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so they support the preaching of the gospel and God sends a thank you letter saying thank you. Wow. Through Paul. But that's what it is. He's saying thank you. Thank you for just following what I've asked you to do. Thank you. Now, the letter to the Philippians gives us uh, insight into the character of the people in the church. And there are some clues in the book of, that suggest that the Philippian jailer is still living and probably among the elders. Um, we're not going to go through every single verse in the book of Philippians, but there's a certain thing I want to point out here. So let's take a look. Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops, that is the elders and deacons. And then Paul, for the next 11 verses, expresses his love for them, uh, for their fellowship in the gospel, and informs them, guess what, guys? I'm in prison again. He had been doing wrong? No, he had been out preaching the gospel again. And because he was preaching the gospel, he was arrested and he was put in prison. Just like he had been in jail in Philippi. And just like the jail time you know, in Philippi turned out for their good and for the benefit of the gospel... So, too, his current uh, situation was doing the same thing. So look at verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard, that's the other jailers that were now taking care of Paul, and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident by my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Once again, the jailers or guards were coming to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, that would not have been lost on the Philippian jailer. Okay, he would have, in fact, I think it would have warmed his heart. Hey, that's kind of an interesting thing. Paul's in jail again. There are more jailers taking care of him. They're coming to know the Lord just like I did. So I want to point out one recurring theme in the book of Philippians. It was enough, there was enough concern in Paul's heart to touch on it 11 times. It's a topic that should concern all of us. And if we ignore it, it may result in the ruin of the local assembly. Okay, that's how important the issue is. If we take, take it uh, to heart and take it to change our character, uh, it will result in the health of the assembly and the growth of the assembly. The subject is key to young believers, and it's key to old believers alike. It's, it's applicable to all of us. And it's really the quality of being like-minded, like-minded, okay? So, quick, quick study. Philippians 1.27, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So here's the issue here in this particular verse. Be of one mind when it comes to the gospel, okay? That we should be preaching the same message uh, together, uh, being like-minded together in the faith of the gospel. But Paul gets a little more personal when he gets to chapter 2, verse 2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. This verse actually is very, very strong. Let me, let me say it to you this way instead. I'll, I'll read it to you this way. Um, have the same mind. Have the same love. Have the same soul, which is what the word accord means here. And have the same mind, 
Again, he says it twice, actually. Slightly different words, but it's, it's, the second time it's actually even stronger. It means that af- after we think about this for a while and reflect on this, yeah, have the same mind. <laughs> okay? Verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, this passage that we're in chapter 2 is one of the most amazing passages in all of Scripture that talks about um, what happened uh, from God's perspective in coming to earth uh, and, and, and Jesus Christ coming and, and dying on the cross. Really, what it is this? Jesus Christ is God. And he didn't cling to that fact uh, and say, well, you know what? They're just not worth saving. Okay? The Bible says this, that he emptied himself. Now, he was still fully God. He didn't diminish uh, his godhood in any way. But he did not cling to his rights as God and stay in heaven. But instead, he humbled himself. And the idea here is that he thought about what he was going to do. Okay, And he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. For who? For whom? For me. For you. If God did that for me, can I not humble myself before my brethren and serve them? Can I not have this same mind? That's the thrust of the passage. It's have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus esteeming others as more important than myself. Wow. The greatest illustration he could pull in all of eternity and all of uh, creation or outside of creation is this one illustration. This is what God did for you. Now, do the same. Okay? Uh, esteem others more important than yourself. Brethren there could have said, well, we never knew Jesus Christ personally on earth. We never met him. Uh, you may have, but we didn't. And so Paul refers to a brother who's like-minded. There's no other like-minded brother uh, other than Timothy. He says, you've seen him. You see how he acts in your midst. Be like him then. Okay? He is serving you, and he's like-minded. As he, he has the same mind as I have, and I have the mind of Christ in this. Act like him. In uh, verse 20. Then he goes on and he wants to bring to the attention an issue that has plagued the assembly for a period of time. And it's found in chapter 4, verse 2. Not only is it well known in the assembly, but remember, Paul is in prison, 800 miles away. And he has heard of this problem in the assembly. There are two women and they can't get along. They're irritating one another. They're, They're fighting with each other. And it's caused such a, a, a tension and division that Paul's hear, hearing about it 800 miles away. And so he's saying, he says this in verse, chapter 4, verse 2, I implore Eudia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Paul calls for a timeout and has to gently rebuke them because they are not of the same mind. Does anybody need a timeout here at Calvary? <laughs> Be of the same mind in the Lord. That's what it says. Now, there's an interesting part here in, in uh, verse 3. It says, I entreat... I'm going to read it from the King James because I like the way it's worded a little bit better. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and with my other fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. That word, yoke fellow, is that word that I used at the beginning of the message. Zutzigos. Okay? In the King James and New King James and most of the translations, it translates it fellow worker or yoke fellow or something along that line. The NIV, interestingly enough, in its margin, has it as a proper name. And it could be a proper name. It's the only time it's used in all of the Scripture. And um, it's true yoke fellow. True yoke fellow. 
And what Paul is saying here, I believe, is that if it is a proper name, um, he is saying, be like your name. Okay? Be a true yoke fellow and take care of this problem in the church. Take care of these women and, and bring them together so that they might be in yoke with us, moving forward with the work in the same way, not fighting with each other. Okay? Be a true yoke fellow this way. So we've come full circle. If, in fact, it is a proper name, it may be the name of the Philippian jailer. I can't prove it. I don't know that for sure, and I haven't seen anybody else say that it is, but I like to think it is. If it is the Philippian jailer, Paul is saying to remember that at one time, Paul was bound in prison. Now the jailer is to be bound with him in seeing these other believers yoked together and, 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 and uh, bring the contentious women into yoke with them. Finally, we come to the, one of our favorite passages in Philippians, chapter 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Remember Paul and Silas in prison? They weren't anxious about their circumstances. But they were instead in prayer and supplication to the Lord with thanksgiving, right? Singing praises to the Lord. They stormed heaven's gates with their needs and their desires, and God gave them peace in their chains. How many of us could be in chains like this and be at peace so much that we're singing? God gave them peace in their stocks. God gave them peace at the blackness of midnight. God gave them peace in the earthquake. And God gives peace to us, which surpasses all understanding, whatever the circumstances are that you're facing. It was not the guard or the jailer who was guarding Paul and Silas. It says in this verse, it was the Lord. And he will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Let's pray and we'll end the meeting. Father, we thank you for this account of Paul and Silas and the jailer and the work that you're doing uh, in all of our lives. Lord, we just pray that um, if there are any here this morning that don't know you, that have not yet responded to the good news of the gospel, that they might today believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And we pray, Lord, for those who are believers, that we might all have the same mind, the same purpose, the same uh, goals and, and direction, Lord, that we might really serve you with all of our hearts. And we pray for, for this, Lord, for the growth and the health and the well-being of the assembly. In Jesus' name, amen.